Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And Romans chapter 12, or 8 verses 12 to 18. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And um, chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to your neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul, Paul here is speaking uh, in, from chapter 12 onwards about the implications of the gospel that he's been proclaiming in the first 11 chapters. Chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our Father, as we come to your words this morning, it is our desire as your people to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That's what we ask from you this morning, Father, that by your Spirit, you would lead us away from worldliness and transform us to be like the person of your Son, Jesus. Work in us, we pray, by your Spirit. Prepare our hearts now to receive your word gladly and change us, we pray, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Now we have in public life a renewed and a good focus, I think, on the character of those in the public eye. So our leading politicians and movie stars and sports people are now being looked at for their moral character, not merely their talent or achievements. They're being examined for the way that they conduct themselves and especially the way that they treat people that they have power over. And that's a good thing, I think, to focus on character of those in uh, leadership. Yet, so often it seems that they're being exposed for their moral failures and sometimes for downright wickedness. And of course, in that too, church leaders are also being held to account. And there have been some prominent names, great successes, it seems, who've been revealed to have deep character flaws and at times, sadly, have been involved in horrendous abuses. And we're angry over that, rightly so, and we grieve over that. Character counts. And perhaps as a society in this moment, we're being woken up to that truth. The way a person lives, especially someone who says they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ lives, it really counts. Now in light of that, that what we're seeing in our society at the moment, Romans 13 verse 8 to 14 is a timely word for us, I think. For here we see displayed for us what a life transformed by the gospel should look like. It shows us the kind of people that God wants to transform us into. Not at all like the world, but into people like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Having believed the gospel of grace and received our salvation, how then shall we live? This passage in Romans this morning has a very simple structure. You can see it just on the page. Just two paragraphs in our text, uh, which are shown on the inside of the service sheet in two points. Verse 8 to 10... Live a life of love. Verse 11 to 14, live a life of light. Love and light. Love and light are both the motivation and the character of the Christian life. Now, let me just be really clear right at the start this is not the way to be saved, it's not a moral code that if you follow it, you will receive salvation, it will lead to salvation. No, it's what flows out of the salvation we have already received. A salvation that comes by grace, not by works. It's the gospel transformed life. Okay, so let's go to the first section, verse 8 to 10. Live a life of love. Now, as we come into these verses, we should take account of what's been coming just a few verses before. Paul's been talking about making good on what we owe to our authorities, verse 1 to 7. So we as Christians are to submit to our governing authorities, to not be indebted, but to pay our debts. Listen for the repeated word in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. 
Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. This is all about debt, about what we owe and paying that off. But now look at verse 8. There is one kind of debt which we owe that can never be repaid in full. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, can I just encourage us to think here of it like this? Think for a moment. Who is the most difficult person that you know? Who's the most irritating, the most annoying, the most unpleasant person that you can think of in your life? Someone who winds you up, who really gets on your nerves. Someone in mind? It's normally always a couple of people. Paul says, love them. And actually he says more than that, doesn't he? He says that you have a continuing debt to love them. To love them and all the other people in your life. You owe them, all people, even the worst people, you owe them a debt of love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now that might raise a question for us. Why is love for others a debt? How can it be true that we owe others love? Especially others who have done nothing for us. We don't owe them anything, surely. Well, that's how the world thinks. But Paul says, yes, we do. Yes, we owe them love. How so? Well, I think it might help us just to refer back to Paul's use of the same word that he uses, the word owe, here. In in Romans 1, verse 14 to 15, he speaks of a debt there as well. There he says this, Romans 1, verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now the ESV obscures it a little bit. That the word obligation there is the same word, to owe or to, to have a debt. He's saying, I am a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Now what does he mean there? In what sense was he a debtor? Was he under obligation? Well, it's not because the Greeks and the barbarians somehow you know, they've given him something and he needs to pay it back. That's, that can't be the case. Now, he sees himself as a debtor because of what he's received from God that he owes it to them. So he's received grace from God in abundance and therefore he is under obligation to share that grace with others. God's given him so much in the gospel that he must share it out with others. He owes it to them and so he goes around preaching Uh, to all that he can find. Now, love is a debt in the same way. We've received such abundant love from God, but we're not to sort of pay God back. In fact, we can't pay God back for his love. It's it's foolish to try. It's a gift of grace towards us. The incredible and gracious love of God that comes to us must be paid out to others. It's a debt that's paid out, not up. Such is the abundance of God's love that we've received 
We can never exhaust paying it out. It is a continuing debt. The Apostle John puts it like this in 1 John 4. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But that's only the first part of verse 8, isn't it? What does paying this debt of love actually look like? Well, Paul's answer is simple, but surprising. It's the law. See that there? Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love is the fulfilment of the law. If, if we look back to the commandments, we see love. As we keep them, we love as we should. It's the last part of verse 8. For the one who loves us, another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now for those of us who have been in Romans for the last year, this is surprising. Because in Romans chapter 3 verse 20, we heard that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there, the law's function is negative, it It reveals our sin. It proves to us that we can't be saved by trying to keep the law. It proves to us that we need to be rescued by Jesus. That's its function in Romans 3. And we've heard since then in Romans 6 and 7 that we as Christian believers have died to the law, that we're no longer under the law, but under grace. And so we might be thinking, and especially we might be thinking this, we've come from a Jewish background, like some of the Roman Christians, background where the law is so prominent. We might be thinking, well, Paul is now saying, his view is this, that the law has nothing positive for us, that that it really has very little role to play in the Christian life. But in fact, Paul here says that the law is fundamental to the character of the Christian life. For the law, it's all about love. To love your neighbour as yourself, that's what the law's all about. So on the one hand, the law reveals our sin and our need of salvation. But now in Christ, it reveals how we should love each other. And Paul takes a sample of the law to illustrate this. Now notice um, verse 9, it's not, it's not exclusive to the commandments mentioned, verse 9, that phrase there, and any other commandments. So the ones he's choosing there are a selection of those within the big ten commandments. And they relate to our conduct towards others. By keeping these laws we're going to really love people. So we love others by keeping sexual activity for marriage, no adultery. We love others by caring for their bodies as those made in God's image, no murder. We love them by treating their property as respectfully and by being generous, 
no stealing. And we love them by not being envious of what they have, but by being content in what God has given us. No coveting. Verse 10 sums these up when it states that, no, that love does no wrong to a neighbour. Love never sins against someone else, nor does it lead others into sin. So take the first commandment here, you shall not commit adultery. An affair is never about love, biblically speaking, even though those involved may claim that it is. Sex outside marriage is not loving because it's sinning against the other person it's lead, and leading the other person into sin. It is wronging them. If someone says to you they love you but sins against you sexually or wants you to sin with them, then it's not Christian love at all because love does no wrong to a neighbour. It always seeks to do good to them. So the Christian life then is motivated by a debt of love, the love that we've received from God, displayed in the grace of Christ crucified for us. That's why we love others. We, we pay out that love as a continuing debt. And the Christian life's characterised by love too. As we obey the commandments given to us, not as a means to salvation, but as the outworking of that salvation. So do you know the abundance of the love of God that you've received through Christ. Well, now love others as Christ commands. Even those you have nothing in common with, even those who are so difficult to love. And wouldn't a community of people who loved each other like this, who sought continuously to love each other, who, ne- who sought to, to never wrong each other, wouldn't that be a community that was attractive in a world which does quite the opposite? The gospel-transformed life is a life of love. That's the big principle. Now let's move to the next section. Paul's got us to look back to the law for our character of love, and now he gets us to look forward to the future for our character of light. Verse 11 to 14, live a life of light. I wonder if, if, how I, if I asked you what time is it and how you'd answer that question. One way would be to check your phone or your watch and say, well, it's 12.15. Another way would be to say, well, it's time for church. Or you could say it's the 21st century. Or you could say, well, it's looking like it's almost time for this sermon to finish. What time is it? Well, verse 11, Paul tells us the time. Paul says that in, in God's plan, great plan of salvation history, it's dawn. That's the time. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Have you ever stayed up through the night and, and I know some of you have got little children and so you've probably just done that last night or at least you look like it. Um, it that's a joke by the way it's not serious if you're up in the early hours of the morning I know some of you are students as well and you're thinking dawn what is what is dawn um, but that's okay dawn that point in the in the night when 
the darkness starts to fade and the light begins to take over. You get this kind of half light, a subtle lightning, and you can see just a little bit more clearly through the gloom. What's happening is the light is pushing out the darkness. And as you see that happen, you know that the night is almost over and the day has almost arrived. Did you know that in God's great plan of history, you're living at dawn? Have you woken up to that reality, says Paul? We're living in the last moments of darkness. The present evil age, the darkness that surrounds us of Satan's influence and sin and suffering and death, is about to come to an end. Paul's looking forwards and he sees that the light of God is dawning upon the world and that when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, our salvation will come in its fullness and he will make everything new. He will sweep away the darkness and it will never return. He will flood his new world with light. Understanding the time correctly that we live in the moments of dawn of this glorious eternal age of light, well, that motivates us to live the way God wants us to live. It motivates us to change the way that we live now. See, our true identity as Christians is that we are people of light, people of the day that's coming, people who belong in the kingdom of light that's breaking into the darkness and is about to arrive in its fullness. We're no longer people of darkness, people of the night who belong in the the present evil age. Our true identity is about to be revealed when Jesus returns and therefore we are to live like the people we're going to be. Paul goes on in the, the next verses, verse 12 to 14. And he shows us what this character that the understanding of the correct time will produce in us. He shows us what the life of light looks like. So verse 12. So then, that's understanding the time. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So living as people of light means we are to put off something and put on something else. So you don't go to bed in your suit and you don't go to work in your Paw Patrol gym jams. Well, you didn't before lockdown. Some of you probably did during lockdown. But not in normal life. It's not right, is it? You need to dress appropriately for the time. So put off your night clothes and put on what is fitting for the day. Paul calls what we are to take off, the works of darkness. And then he tells us what they are, and they come in three pairs, just as examples. Verse 13, orgies and drunkenness, that's drinking and partying, that's the the first pair. 
Then you get sexual sin, sexual immorality and sensuality, the second pair. And then social sins, quarrelling and jealousy, the third pair. So to put it more bluntly, people of light are not to booze up, bunk up or blow up. To live like that is to live in conformity to the world, to the darkness. That's what our society's like. If you put on the TV late at night, that's all you'll see. It's foolish to live that way. To live that way is to gratify the desires of the flesh, as verse 14 puts it. And if a Christian is living like that, they need to wake up to the time and put aside those deeds of darkness, those old night clothes. Instead, we're to get dressed in something far more glorious, something fitting for the day that we live in, which Paul calls the armour of light in verse 12. We're to wake up and get dressed for the battle that we're in, the battle where the, the weapons of darkness are pointed at us, seeking to destroy us. We're to protect ourselves from temptation from the world and the flesh and the devil, the temptation to go back to our dark ways to the boozing and the sexual immorality and the fractious relationships. We're to guard ourselves by putting on the armour of light. But what does that mean? What is the armour of light? Well, Paul uses the exact same verb in verse 14. Rather, put on, same verb, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling us that the armour of light is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we're already in Christ. We've been purchased by him, by his death. We're now united with him, in him through faith. And now Paul says we are to clothe ourselves with his righteousness, to put him on. And how do we do that? I sometimes struggle to work out how we actually do that. I think there's a clue in the phrase, make no provision for, in verse 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify, gratify its desires. That, that phrase, make no provision for, that means not to put, don't put your mind towards it. Don't think about it. Don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And so conversely, therefore, to put on Christ is to think of him in each moment, to turn our minds towards him, to dwell on him, so that by the power of his spirit at work in us, our character becomes like his. Now let's just think about how to do this practically. We're going to just take those three pairs in verse 13 and, and look at those. So first pair, verse 13, orgies and drunkenness. I wonder if over the last year you found yourself thinking like this, just being bored and frustrated and angry with the monotony of life. Felt like that? Most of us have. Don't think about how getting wasted down the newly opened pub is going to cheer you up. Don't think about how that multi-pack of wine that you've just ordered is just what you need to get through each day. Don't tease that thought in your mind. Don't dwell on that. To, make, to do that is to make provision for the flesh. Instead, turn your mind to Christ 
to think on him, upon his love for you, upon his care for you, his death for you, that you might know him. And as you dwell on him, you clothe yourself with him in his righteousness. You begin to lose the desire to do those things, and you begin to gain the desire to live in the light. Let's take the second pair. Sexual immorality and sensuality. Let me just give you a couple of common scenarios that people find themselves in. If you're feeling rejected by your husband or by your wife, your husband never shows you any attention, never listens to you, or your wife shows no interest in sex, or the other way around, and often in my experience it is the other way around, Or perhaps you're single, you're not married, and you're wrestling with the frustrated desires that you know need to be fulfilled in marriage. If you're struggling with either of those scenarios, or countless others, single or married, what do you do? Well, you don't make provision for the flesh. Don't give your thought life over to thinking about that imaginary perfect husband or perfect wife who will do whatever you wanted. Don't imagine an encounter that will thrill you. And don't go to a computer screen that will play that out for you. Instead, turn your thoughts to think that Christ has given you all that you need in him. Remember that his blood purchased you, that his body was given for you to buy you, (laughs) Remember that you are part of his beloved bride and that he gave his life to win you. Rejoice that he has given you all the attention of his heart. And in that way, you will become a person of light, satisfied in him, and by his spirit, he will give you the strength to repent and to refuse to do wrong to others. Well, let's take the third pair, quarrelling and jealousy. Imagine this, um, this would be a familiar thing for many of us, I think. A friend has a nicer house than you, and a nicer car, and a nicer, more well-paid job, and a nicer family life than you. And no matter where you are in life, there's always someone who's got it better than you, isn't there? Will you think on that and dwell on that Will you you fantasise what it will be like to be them? Will you think on how you deserve what they get and become bitterly jealous of them? And then perhaps you might start to slander them to others, be angry at them. Now, to do that would be to put on your nightclothes. It would be to go back to the darkness Instead, think on all the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. The grace and the mercy that you've received. And that will transform you. It will enable you to be content with your lot and to love the person that you used to be jealous of, as you should. You see, in all these things, one kind of thinking belongs in the darkness and it leads to greater darkness. 
And one kind of thinking belongs in the light and leads to greater light. We are to think on Christ, to clothe ourselves with Christ, because you belong to the day, Paul says. You belong to the day that's beginning to dawn, the day of Jesus Christ and our salvation from this present dark evil age. It's coming. Wake up and think like it and then live like it. That's the Christian life. So what is it, as we close, what is it that motivates us to live the Christian life? Love. The love of God for us in Christ and light, the day of Christ that is dawning. That should motivate us to seek to live in obedience to Jesus. And what is it that characterizes the Christian life? Well, it's love, the love that is the fulfillment of the law that does no wrong to a neighbor. And it's light, the armor of light, the putting on of Jesus Christ as we think on him and become like him. Is that the kind of people that we are? Well, let's pray that it will be by his grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, as we have looked at this passage and a passage of instruction for us, urging us to live a life that pleases you in, in love and light, we're aware that we constantly fall short of your word. And so we confess that before you. We say sorry to you. And we know that we do not in ourselves have the power to change how we are. And so, Lord God, we ask that as you have given us your Holy Spirit, that he would work in our hearts, that he would make us like your son Jesus. Help us to cooperate with him. Help us to say no to what is dark and of the old way of the world. And help us to live in the light of Christ for your glory's sake. And in your son's name. Amen.